Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to Dan1132. I'm Jim Wittavine. It's good to be here with you once again. This is episode 70. And in this episode, I'm going to be returning to one of the themes that I've discussed a number of times that I continually keep on coming back to uh, in the first episodes of the podcast way back when. I spoke about the perils of big tech, and I did several episodes on the perils of big tech. And this subject has come back to uh, the forefront of my thinking recently, and I'm going to share with you a small piece of uh, a video from the hearings that are going on in Ottawa. And this is a, a series of questions being responded to by Jody Thomas who is the director of national security who works uh, under directly under the prime minister and i think the the questioning the, the the form of questioning and the direction in which the questioning goes and the answers that are given are very revealing so if you're watching on rumble just take a look at this but otherwise listen along the uh, the lawyer is interviewing jody thomas I understand your position is, and uh, your position as National Security Advisor, I've managed to find uh, the policy uh, with respect to your position. So if you can agree with the following, this is what you are to do. The National Security Advisor to the Prime Minister and Associate Secretary to Cabinet assists the clerk and provides, yeah, and provides information, advice, and recommendations to the Prime Minister as follows. As Associate Secretary to Cabinet, he or she can act, as, uh, act on the clerk's behalf on any of the policy and operational issues that come before the Privy Council. As National Security Advisor to the Prime Minister, he or she ensures the effectiveness or the effective coordination of Canada's security and intelligence community, and together with the Deputy Ministers of National Defence, is responsible for the communication security establishment. The National Security Advisor also oversees the provisions of intelligence assessments to the Prime Minister, other ministers, and senior government officials. The National Security Advisor to the Prime Minister is supported by two secretariats via the Foreign and Defence Policy Advisors to the Prime Minister, Security and Intelligence, and International Assessment Staff. That's what your job is. That's an old version of the job description. There's been some changes to it since then, but sure. Right. But you are not in the business, or your, your department is not supposed to be in the business, of actually collecting intelligence yourself. We don't collect intelligence ourselves. But I thought you'd said that it was looked at, you were setting up your own bureau or what have you to look at online rhetoric and do your own open source intelligence. What I said is that there is no one doing that in a broad sense. Um, I saw it as a gap. Uh, I need to do something about it. I don't have the legal mandate right now to do it. Um, the OSINT uh, document you saw previously is all obtained through legal means um, as an analysis. What we need is a more, we need a unit in PCO or public safety that is more akin to the foreign intelligence assessment unit that does, takes covert and overt information and makes assessments. We don't have that domestically. It is a gap. I don't have a solution for it yet. And I won't be the sole person who decides whether it happens or not, but it is something that we need to look at and I'm exploring. That's my but job. Why would, you, why would you need that outside of the, the civil service who are governed by legislation that collect intelligence? It would be part of the civil service, just like the foreign intelligence assessment unit is part of the civil service. 
Right, and but the Foreign Intelligence Service, but like the International Assessment Staff and Foreign Intelligence Service, you had the information from them, I take it, when you made, when the cabinet made this decision, did you not? They were assessing foreign intelligence, not okay. domestic intelligence. And domestic intelligence was being assessed by the RCMP. Who assess also foreign intelligence. Right. CSIS. Who also assess foreign intelligence. The Canadian Security Intelligence. Who staff. also assess foreign intelligence. And they also look at domestic intelligence. Some of them do, CSE does not. Um, so just as those units all have mandates to collect and do some assessment, they, we see that raw intelligence and we make assessments of it on the foreign side. I would like an equivalent on the domestic side. I don't have that now. I believe it is a gap. So how is, why, why is what the RCMP does already doing that with their reports? They have two sets. They have the IMVE assessments online. They have the onset assessments online. Why is that not good enough for you? because I would like to look at, just as we do with foreign intelligence, all the various pieces in totality rather than institution by institution. It's part of our job to give yeah. a holistic picture. And it's your job, according to this description, to effectively coordinate all that anyway. Right, but I need to have people with the mandate to do that assessment, which is I coordinate the function and the... Um, issues, the, the issues management of what's going on in the national security community, but not necessarily their intelligence assessment. How about this? What if they just got rid of your position and left it to the director of CSIS to do what you do? So the director of CSIS is not the only person who uh, is responsible for security in this country. That's number one. You can certainly make that recommendation to the governor and council right. if it's useful to you, but there are more people than him involved in assessing national security in, the, in this country. But it's nothing passed by parliament, right? Parliament The Privy decides. Council office is an established uh, office that is the essentially the prime minister's department we coordinate information, we challenge, we provide policy advice to the Prime Minister, and I am part of that mechanism. I, I, I understand that, but you can agree that Parliament has given you no mandate to do that with I, respect to intelligence. I don't agree with how you framed it. Parliament? So I, I don't a... agree with the basic premise of your um, challenge. Well, I, here you go, yes or no. Does, has Parliament, via statute, given you, the National Security Advisor and, and the Privy Council, authority to collect and then analyze intelligence? Uh, the Foreign Intelligence and Assessment Group is a long-standing group that no parliament hasn't given it authority, but it exists and it continues. Okay, next. So I think you can see from that, if you watch and listen carefully to what this uh, public official is saying that we have something to be concerned about where we have the government, people in unelected positions, people who are not responsible to parliament, who are wanting more power for themselves for to gather domestic intelligence, to do the kind of spy work that the government has traditionally done outside of our borders in, in the name of, at least in the name of, national security, but to do that same kind of work uh, officially within Canada. And 
obviously here without direct supervision by our elected members of parliament. And this is a this is a scary thing when you think about it. Now you may think, well, this is not a big deal. They're they're uh, you know they're going to look into certain things. They're already doing it anyway. Uh, there are any number of ways to look at it uh, and and try to minimize the importance of this or the seriousness of this. But I would argue, and I do argue, that this is a very serious step towards a and continuing a process of a more and more intrusive, totalitarian-leaning state entering more and more into the personal and private affairs, uh, the political opinions, and even the, the religious opinions, the religious beliefs of citizens of our country. And this is something that should greatly concern us, because as we see, step by step, liberties are being eroded. Privacy is being taken away. And so our relationship with the the technology that we use that we're we're so linked to is something that we need to seriously consider and that's something that we have done in previous episodes in this podcast but in this episode i want to focus specifically on a book entitled surveillance valley the secret military history of the internet and the uh, the author of this book is yasha levine uh, L-E-V-I-N-E. And this book was published in 2018. And I last week, I, I wrote a brief review of this book for uh, Reform Perspective for their 52, and 52 books in 2022 uh, series of reviews. Uh, and I'm just going to start off just by reading my, my review. And the, as I mentioned, the book was published in 2018. Uh, it's a 371-page book, and uh, I do highly recommend this book. And the review begins way back in the 1990s when the internet began to enter public consciousness and soon thereafter into everyone's daily life. It seemed to most of us that it was just that it just sort of came into existence from nowhere. The internet one day it seemed like it wasn't there and the next day it seemed like it was there and 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 uh you know we the uh the people who jumped on the bandwagon early uh were very excited about it and it was uh it was new and uh it was very exciting. We weren't very much aware of the history of the internet, where it came from, or how it was developed. And even today, after decades of exponential growth, the roots of the internet are still a mystery for most of its users. In this book, Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet, Sasha Levine's deep dive exploration of the history of the internet is it's a revealing look into the internet's roots in the American military-industrial complex. It's a meticulously heavily footnoted, meticulously researched and heavily footnoted book. And in it, Levine details the way in which the internet's history has been shaped by the defense industry, by espionage, espionage agencies, public officials, and big businesses, with each actor working in concert with the others to achieve its own purposes. So big business wants to achieve its goals. Uh, the espionage agencies, the alphabet agencies, or the internal security agencies want to achieve their own goals. Government officials have their own goals, but they're working together to use these technological advancements for their own purposes. 
Levine recounts the origins of the internet as a product of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA. If you're not familiar with DARPA, look into it, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. There's uh, DARPA has a, a large role to play in the development of the internet, but not just the development of the internet, in a lot of other technical, technological advances as well. Uh, so he talks about the, the internet as a project of DARPA, its development in partnership with a number of American educational institutions, universities. And interestingly, for example, in 1969, the projects that they were working on were vigorously and strongly opposed by a number, a large number of students and faculty at those universities who saw what this project would mean. And they assumed that this project would mean uh, disaster. It would mean far more surveillance uh, suppression of, in their eyes, political uh, or uh, progressive political causes. Uh, so they understood what the purpose was behind it. And Levine also explores the central role that the American military and security agencies continue to have in the continued development and growth of the internet's reach into every part of our lives. So the title of the book is Surveillance Valley, and, and Levine calls Silicon Valley that Northern California location near San Francisco, San Jose. Uh, that name, Silicon Valley, has become synonymous with the internet, with big tech. But he calls it Surveillance Valley because he says that while corporations like Google continue to market themselves as companies that, quote, embody every utopian promise of the network society, unquote, what they are in fact doing is continuing to build out the old military cybernetic dream of a world where everyone is watched, predicted, and controlled. And so I conclude this review by saying that uh, this book is an important exploration of the way in which information technology has been weaponized in the 21st century. And if you read it, and I do recommend it highly, as I mentioned, you will be challenged to rethink your use of the internet, and you may even be encouraged, as I was, to de-Google your life. And that's one thing that I have done, is that uh, I was formerly uh, very much attached to Google and everything uh, linked to Google, which is so much on the internet. But because of what I've learned, and because of the fact that I no longer, and I don't want to contribute to this surveillance society, I have uh, I have left or been working on, and it's not so easy when you're connected in so many different ways and working online and doing all of these things. Uh, working on de-googling uh, my own online presence, and uh, I'll talk about that in a future episode as well. So I want to go just very briefly through the book and starting with the prologue and, and what uh, what Levine says in the prologue. He, he start, starts out talking about the current situation, the current uh, state of affairs uh, in the internet uh, information technology industry. He says, Google is actually a full-fledged military contractor, sells versions of its consumer data mining and analysis technology to police departments, to city governments, and to just about every major U.S. intelligence and military agency. So that's when we, when we think about Google, we think about, well, how is it 
that Google can offer so many of its services for free. How it's so convenient for us. We can have a spreadsheet for free. We can do document sharing for free. We can have email for free. We don't have to pay anything for any of these services. How is that possible? Same thing with Facebook. How is it possible that we can have free access to all of these tools, which are, which are really very helpful in many ways and can be? Well, the answer to that question is not that they sell advertising. Advertising is, is only a, a small part of their income. Where that income comes from, where that cash flow comes from for these big tech corporations is in the data. And that's something that I continually emphasize. And, uh, and I've, I've spoken to people about this and they say, well, what, what, what do they do with this data? Well, one of the things that Levine says is that they, they sell it and they, uh, they do this data mining and analysis and they sell it to police departments, to city governments, U.S. Uh, intelligence and military agencies and other intelligence and military agencies as well. So over the years, it supplied mapping technology used by the U.S. Army in Iraq, hosted data for the Central Intelligence Agency, indexed the National Security Agency's vast intelligence database, the NSA, built military robots, co-launched a spy satellite with the Pentagon, and leased its cloud computing platform to help police departments predict crime. So they're they're working and, and Levine speaks about this they're they're working with police departments to what what he says predict crime it's it's uh it's like they they have they they use all the data they collate all the data they put it together and it's like the movie minority minority report where they will be able to to a certain extent or they try to uh, predict where and when a crime is going to happen. And this technology is being used and has been used in the United States particularly, but has been used elsewhere as well. Levine says that some parts of these tech giants are so thoroughly intertwined with America's security services that it's hard to tell where they end, where these companies end, and where the U.S. government begins. So they're so tightly and meshed with each other. And it's really not surprising when you think about it, because the internet came out of this effort, an attempt to build computer systems that could get, collect and share intelligence, watch the world in real time, and study and analyze people and political movements with the ultimate goal of predicting and preventing social upheaval. And a lot of that, that development obviously happened in a military context, uh, military context, and specifically in the context of the Vietnam War, where a lot of the new technology was put to use for those military purposes uh, in order for uh, the U.S. to uh, well, they used it to try to win that war and, and using all of that data surveillance technology. And Levine writes that in 1969, this is, I spoke about this earlier, when ARPANET, the precursor of today's internet, came online, a group of MIT and Harvard students attempted to shut down the research that was happening in their universities because they understood that what was being developed was a system of computerized people manipulation. They warned us that it would be used to spy on Americans and wage war on progressive political movements. And as it turns out, they were right over 50 years ago. 
1972, almost as soon as ARPANET was rolled out on a national level, the network was used, surprise, surprise, to help the CIA, the NSA, the National Security Administration, and the U.S. Army spy on tens of thousands of anti-war and civil rights activists. And so these students and faculty, they were absolutely correct. At that time, the the spying was being done on these so-called progressive movements. Now, as as uh, as a conservative, or you know, perhaps people that think as a uh, in a more conservative way, you may think, well, well, big deal. These are these are uh, anti-war and civil rights activists. Well, we see what happens when the political uh, wind begins to shift, because one one day it might be civil rights activists, the next day it more than you know in the next period of history it might be Christians. Depending on you know the tides and then and the way that these things flow, so uh, one way or the other, this uh, this kind of information gathering, surveillance, uh, spying on our own people uh, is very damaging. Whether it's for people that we like and support, or for people that we don't like and don't support. In the first chapter, going on in the book, in the first chapter of the book. Uh, Levine is talking about the history, and he talks about the RAND Corporation, uh, the Research and Development Corporation. It's a military and intelligence contractor, another name that's important to know. So along with DARPA, the RAND Corporation is very important. Uh, Military and intelligence contractor created by the U.S. Air Force as a public-private research agency. So it worked with the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency the Research and Development Agency of the U.S. Department of Defense. And it worked to develop these new technologies for use by the military. And DARPA was founded in 1958 under President Eisenhower in the United States. Now, in 1971, continuing on, there was a a committee uh, of the U.S. government, Senator Sam Irvin, the Irvin Committee. And the results of this committee, the, the, the study that they did, they, they established the fact that the U.S. Army had amassed a powerful domestic intelligence presence and had developed a massive system for monitoring virtually all political protest in the United States. They were very concerned about that, obviously. The Army surveillance program, Levine writes, was a direct extension of America's bigger counterinsurgency strategy which have been developed for use in foreign conflicts, Vietnam specifically, but which was immediately brought back and used on the home front. Because if you can use it in a foreign setting, well, then obviously you can also use it at home. And that's that's so many times, we've, we've, we've seen it in past episodes on transhumanism, for example, where these military projects are... Uh, they want to apply them. They begin in the military. The military has, in the United States has practically endless funding. So they begin there, and then that, that makes its way into the general public, used on the home front. So Army Intelligence was collecting, disseminating, and storing amounts of data on the private and personal affairs of law-abiding citizens. Comments about the financial affairs, sex lives, and psychiatric histories of persons unaffiliated with the armed forces appeared throughout the various record systems. And that is, Levine says, 
the army was spying on a huge swath of American society for no good reason. In chapter 4, Levine asks the question, how is it that this military-developed tool, this tool of the military-industrial complex, how is it that that technology, which is so deeply connected to making war, to counterinsurgency, to to fighting against or putting down uh, rebellions or, or freedom fighters, depending on which side you're looking from, how is it that it suddenly became thought of as a one-way ticket to global utopia. And it's a very, it's a fascinating history that Levine recounts here because there are, there are several people who played an important role in this. And, and one man is Stuart Brand. And Stuart Brand was a publisher of the Whole Earth Catalog. And perhaps you've heard of the Whole Earth Catalog. or uh, it, it's a, it was or is a lifestyle magazine for the commune movement. So that's, that's how it started off. And, and Stuart Brand was a major figure in what, what's called the counterculture, along with people like Timothy Leary, the people who uh, promoted the use of, uh, of LSD, who encouraged people to, to drop out of society and, and form communes and, and lead this alternate lifestyle and argued for free love and all of these things. So major figure in the counterculture was Stuart Brand. And he became enamored with internet technology, and he was, he was pulled into this. And he became a major promoter of the internet as a kind of counterculture uh, tool, something that could, uh, could be of such a great benefit to the, the counterculture to have this connection. And, uh, and this developed as a, a kind of counterculture movement, uh, cyberpunk movement, talking about liberty, talking about freedom and all of these things. But they were really co-opted and, and brought on board in that way. And then in the 1990s, the internet was privatized because it had been that military network. And then it, w- it, be- it was privatized without a, a lot of fanfare uh, and without a lot of public input. It was privatized and became a privatized telecommunications system. And that history is very important because in 1996, President Bill Clinton signed the Telecommunications Act. And that Telecommunications Act deregulated the telecommunications industry in the United States. And so it allowed nearly unlimited corporate cross-ownership of the media. That's something that we've also spoken of. The fact that the, the mass media is held in such few hands in Canada and the United States and elsewhere. Just one example, if you look at local newspapers and uh, you know, your, your former, formerly independent local newspaper is now a part of a conglomerate and there's no way that you're getting an independent voice from your local newspaper. That's just one example of, of many so there's this un- almost unlimited corporate cross-ownership of the media. So companies own cable companies, radio stations, film studios, newspapers, phone companies, television broadcasters, and internet service providers. That, that uh, the way in which ownership has been concentrated in very few hands. 
The law, this Telecommunications Act, triggered massive consolidation and culminated in just a handful of vertically integrated companies owning the bulk of the American media market. And that's not just in the United States, as I said, it's all over the world. In chapter five, Levine talks about Google. And he says, uh, as I spoke about earlier, Google's a free service which seems to defy the laws of economics. How does it become a multi-billion dollar corporation? And Google great does great marketing. There's no doubt about it. They convinced their users that everything that Google did was driven by a desire to help humanity. And they had this very strange slogan. I'm not sure if they still do or not, uh, called Don't Be Evil. That's a, their, their slogan. Seems uh, a little bit less than, than encouraging, but it is what it is. And so... They convince people that, that they're just here to help humanity, to get us all connected and to, to bring us into that cyber utopia. And that's the story you'll find in just about every popular book on Google, Levine writes. A gee whiz tale about two brilliant nerds from Stanford who turned a college project into an epoch-defining new economy dynamo. Doesn't that sound familiar? Sounds a lot like the mythology that is built up around Bill Gates working in his garage and developing uh, Microsoft, you know, rags to riches kind of story, which is so far from the truth, or the same kind of story around Mike, Mark Zuckerberg uh, with Facebook. So the, the tale about these brilliant nerds turning this college project into this, this economic dynamo, a company, Levine continues, that embodied every utopian promise of the network society, empowerment, knowledge, and democracy. So the victory of marketing over reality. Larry Page, one of those involved in the founding of Google, said this in 2014. He said, the societal goal is our primary goal. We've always tried to say that with Google. Some of the most fundamental questions which people are not thinking about, there's the question of how, we, how do we organize people? How do we organize our democracies? So that's, that's what Larry Page sees as being the goal of Google and companies like that, to organize people, to organize our democracies, as if uh, they had the responsibility or uh, the right to do that. And Levine says, spend time listening to and reading the words of Google executives, and you quickly realize they see no hard lines separating government and Google. They look into the future and see internet companies morphing into operating systems for society. To them, the world is too big and moves too quickly for traditional governments to keep up. The world needs the help of Google to lead the way to provide ideas, investment, and technical knowledge. And anyway, there's no stopping the spread of technology. And that's, that's kind of an argument you often hear. Well, there's nothing we can do about it. It's, it's, technology is going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to change. Well, that's true as long as people say there's nothing we can do about it and it's going to continue to grow and we're going to have to continue to use Google and we're going to have to continue to use Amazon and Facebook and Twitter and all of these uh, these other uh, international mega corporations. Uh, as long as that that kind of idea prevails, obviously change isn't going to happen. That that technology is going to keep on spreading unless we say no and unless we we decide to use other means and we do that deliberately. And thoughtfully. Levine says that the truth is that the internet came out of a Pentagon project 
to develop modern communication and information systems that would allow the United States to get the drop on its enemies, both at home and abroad. That effort was a success, exceeding all expectations. So, of course, the U.S. government leveraged the technology it had created and keeps leveraging it to the max. How could it not? Once the state gets that kind of power, it's very, very hard to get the state to relinquish that power and to control how that power is used. So Levine says that for years, the State Department, the U.S. State Department, in partnership with the Broadcasting Board of Governors and companies like Facebook and Google, had worked to train activists from around the world on how to use internet tools and social media to organize opposition political movements. So using the internet, using the tools, using the the social networks, the the WhatsApps and Telegrams and messaging things of uh, messaging apps of the world to to mobilize these movements. And you could think as particularly of the so-called Arab Spring. And the Arab Spring provided the U.S. government with the confirmation it was looking for. Social media, combined with technologies like Tor, we can when you think of Tor, that that uh, has to do with what uh, what people call the dark web the uh, supposedly untraceable, supposedly completely private, all of these uh, promises that are made about the privacy inherent in these technologies, which turn out to be false. Uh, Anyways, the, the Arab Spring provided the U.S. government with the confirmation that social media, these technologies, could be tapped to bring huge masses of people into the streets and could even trigger revolutions. Diplomats in Washington called it democracy promotion. Critics called it regime change. One man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. But it doesn't matter what you called it, the U.S. government saw that it could leverage the internet to sow discord and inflame political instability in countries it considered hostile to U.S. interests. Good or bad, it could weaponize social media and use it for insurgency. And it wanted more. And what happened and, and what continues to happen is that there's a, a, an internet freedom movement where, where even the, the uh, big tech giants will talk about internet freedom and how we need to have free access to, uh, to technology and, and there needs to be less surveillance and less monitoring and, and uh, more openness. And Levine examines this, he examines Tor, for example, that technology, and sees that it's it's very interesting to note who and what is actually behind these technologies. He says, if you step back to survey the scene, the entire landscape of this new internet freedom privacy movement looked absurd. Cold War era organizations spun off from the CIA, now funding the global movement against Government surveillance? How could that be? Google and Facebook, companies that ran private surveillance networks and worked hand-in-hand with the NSA, deploying government-funded privacy tech to protect their users from government surveillance? Seems incongruous, because it is. And he asks privacy activists working with Silicon Valley and the U.S. government to fight government surveillance and with the support of Edward Snowden himself? Famous whistleblower? 
And Levine points out, and, and he documents this. This is not, he's, he's not theorizing. He's not guessing. He's not, not surmising or taking leaps of logic to find this out. This is, this is <laughs> very well researched and very well documented. Many people, he says, involved in privacy activism do not know about the U.S. government's ongoing efforts to weaponize the privacy movement itself, nor do they appreciate Silicon Valley's motives in this fight. Without that knowledge, it is impossible to make sense of it all. How is it possible that the CIA and CIA offshoot organizations are working together with these supposed privacy activists? So, he says, talk of government involvement in the privacy space sounds like something cooked up by a paranoiac. And people with something to hide, he continues, whether terrorists, foreign spies, or drug dealers, believed in Tor's promise of anonymity and used the network en masse. And you can think of, if you're familiar with the story of Silk Road, uh, it's it's a fascinating story. The Silk Road was a drug distribution network that was developed using Tor. And the guy behind it, uh, I forget what his real name was, but his his, his secret or his code name was the Dread Pirate Roberts. If you look it up, he's in jail. Uh, He was imprisoned. He did a lot of of nasty stuff. But he thought, and the people that were using this system thought, that they they could never be discovered because it it was secure. So they believed the promise of anonymity, used the network en masse. By doing so, they proceeded with a false sense of safety, doing things on the network they would never do out in the open, all while helping to mark themselves for further surveillance. So, so even those tools are being used against people. And for the average user, these privacy tools, Levine says, provided a false sense of security and offered the opposite of privacy. The old cypherpunk dream, the idea that regular people could use grassroots, in, grassroots encryption tools to carve out cyber islands free of government control was proving to be just that, a dream. And while internet billionaires like Larry Page, Sergey Brin, and Mark Zuckerberg slam government surveillance, talk up freedom, and embrace Snowden and crypto privacy culture, their companies continue to cut deals with the Pentagon They work with the National Security Administration. They work with the Central Intelligence Agency. They continue to track and profile people for profit. So they say one thing, they market themselves one way, and they do the exact opposite. It's the same old split-screen marketing trick, the public branding, and the -the behind-the-scenes reality. So internet freedom this between quotation marks is a win-win for everyone involved. Everyone except regular users who trust their privacy to double dealing military contractors while powerful surveillance Valley corporations continue to build out the old military cybernetic dream of a world where everyone is watched, predicted and controlled. And that's how Levine concludes the book. And once again, the book is called Surveillance Valley, The Secret History, Military History of the Internet by Yasha Levine, published by Public Affairs Books in 2018. And uh, I have it as hardcover. I'm not sure if it's available as a softcover as well. But it's, it's well-written, very, very interesting. It's a fascinating 
tale, if nothing, if nothing else, and it's a lot more because it's also a, a very cautionary tale, which will, if you don't know anything about the history of the internet or current activities or current things that are, that the, that the internet and the, the, uh, the information technology is being used for, it'll, it's an eye opener. And uh, I do highly recommend it. And I think it's a, a very important book, but it should lead us and knowing these things should lead us to seriously reconsider at the very least how we use the technology and how comfortable we, we feel with the technology that, that connects us in, in this way. Now, there are people who are public figures. There are people who are major public figures, minor public figures who are known. And then there's just average folks. And you, you may think that as an average person that, well, you have, you have nothing to hide. You, uh, you lead an upright and moral life and uh, you don't do things online that you wouldn't do personally. So really it's not a big deal. And that, you know what, may be true. There, there's probably no one reading your emails, no physical person reading your emails. But there are definitely, if you're using Gmail, for example, there are definitely uh, ways in which those messages and the way that you use the product are being scanned and collated. And and and, uh, and whether you, if you use Instagram or uh, TikTok or any of those those other uh, applications, there have been times, and there there have been even recently, uh, a father sent a photo of. Uh, young, of his young child to his doctor to show the doctor a rash before the before the uh, the appointment that he had with the doctor. What ended up happening was that this photo was intercepted, and the police showed up at this guy's door uh, because it was intercepted as child pornography. When in fact, what he was doing was uh, sending this photo of, of of his child, young child's rash, to his doctor, and. Uh, so that he could see it before the the appointment to to facilitate things. Now that's important on a couple levels because it shows you how this technology can be used and the trouble that it can lead to, even you know inadvertently for this person. You may think, well, good that they're they'll be able to get rid of child pornography. Well, what, at what cost? And and how is that being done? And what this means actually, when you think about it, is that in order for them to have the technology to detect what they think of as child pornography or what may be child pornography, they have to have an incredible amount actually of child pornography themselves stored in order to make that, those kind of comparisons, which is really horrible and gross to think about. So those kind of mistakes are made, those kind of uh, errors in uh, leading people who are innocent into some serious trouble and having to to get their way out and and uh, prove that they weren't involved in anything nefarious. There are a, a flagging of of uh, certain phrases and certain words, and obviously, if you use YouTube and if you use Facebook and Twitter and all of these things, you you probably you may have experienced it yourself, where uh, you post something and then underneath your post, a, a message is posted that saying that uh, whatever you said has been debunked, or this is a conspiracy theory, or this is not true, or whatever. This is a, a link to the the fact checkers checkers. Or many, and many people, many content creators have been uh, banned from YouTube because of the uh, the way in which, not human beings, but uh, the uh, the electronic uh, system 
or the, the, the computer system has, has decided that their material is not acceptable for the platform. And, and that, that continues, and that kind of control continues, and uh, it continues to, to worsen. And again, depending on the, the winds of politics, it can change who gets targeted. Who's going to get targeted? Am I going to be targeted? Are you going to be targeted? Is our enemy going to be targeted? Whoever it may be, that information is being gathered and used. You may be anonymous, but your information is still being used. So I think we all need to seriously consider whether we are continuing to feed the beast, to feed the, uh, the big tech giants, the, the data that they thrive on. Or if we can, we can take some small steps to stop feeding the beast, to stop contributing. You may say, well, it's not, it's not going to make any difference. Like, what difference am I going to make? I'm just, I'm small potatoes. Well, perhaps it's not, it's not going to make any difference. I'm, I'm not thinking, I'm not imagining that me personally de-Googling my own electronic uh, uh, work, the work I do online, de-Googling that work is going to cause Google to collapse. I'm not thinking that. But what I am thinking is that at the very least, I am not going to be contributing to that process anymore. I think that's important. I think it's important for all of us to consider that and to consider our responsibility, to consider what steps that we can take to avoid contributing to a system which has, if it's which which if it isn't totalitarian already, has every tendency towards totalitarianism and promoting totalitarianism, which is certainly not good for any of us. So I hope that gives you something to consider and something to think about. How, how can you uh, minimize your, your interaction with Google? There are, there are ways to do that. And there are, you know, even aside from just getting rid of it entirely, it's, that may not be a possibility for depending on your work and the things that you do, uh, how we want to communicate. Of course, obviously what I'm doing right now is I'm using the internet and I'm using all of these tools. And, and, and obviously at this point, I think it's a positive thing for me to be able to do that. So continuing to use the tools, but using them in a smarter way. And there are many ways in which we can do that. So I hope that this episode has encouraged you to think about that and think about what that means for being a, a good a good steward, what it means for uh, being a, a good citizen, which is what we should all be striving to be. Uh, as, as Christians, we should be the best citizens. And uh, also how to live freely and to promote freedom because freedom is extremely important and it's, a, it's, it's important for us as Christians. It's important for everyone. That kind of freedom and freedom from government overreach which can, and as we have, we've seen over the past couple of years, does have such negative consequences on individual people, on the church as a whole, on all of us. And when we continue, as we should, to preach a message that is exclusive, because we do preach an exclusive message, and when, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, we live in a society that's repressive, that 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 works in this repressive tolerance, where where uh, tolerance of dissension is not tolerated, or where dissension is not tolerated from the prevailing viewpoint, where any kind of message of exclusivity, 
or any message that says Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, that he is sovereign and not the almighty state, that, that, that can place us in, in a very precarious position. So it's important for us not to modulate that message, not to try to adapt it to our society or our culture, but to continue to proclaim it because Jesus proclaimed it. But that may put us in a place and often does put us in a place where we can be suppressed and repressed in this repressively tolerant society in which we live. So these are very important things for us to consider, and I'll continue to to beat this drum, uh, and I will continue to speak out about these issues with the hopes of encouraging all of us to, to take this knowledge, to understand the spirit of the age, to be people who, with all of this, we, we, we don't just focus on this, we want to be people, in the words of Daniel 11, verse 32, who know our God, who know what Scripture says, who know... Uh, what God God himself said in his self-revelation and seek to live in that way. But knowing our God, also being aware of what's going on in the world and standing firm and taking action, which is our calling and which is what uh, we are here to do. And it's, it's a great blessing. It's a great privilege for us to be able to do that. So that's all for this episode. I'll probably be away for a few weeks. I'm going to be traveling over the next few weeks, but... I might have an episode yet in December, but if not, the next episode will be early in the new year, the Lord willing. So until then, may God bless you. May God help us all to stand firm and to take action.